and welcome to the In Focus podcast at The Hindu, which brings you the most important news and views from around the world. I'm Narayan Lakshman, Associate Editor at The Hindu, and I'm your host for this episode. As the world continues to grapple with the debilitating human toll and economic consequences of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, experts such as Dr. Ashish K. Jha, the K.T. Lee Professor of Global Health at Harvard T. H. Chan School of Public Health, and the director of the Harvard Global Health Initiative, have been at the forefront of research and public policy guidance to public and private institutions dealing with the crisis. In particular, Dr. Jha focuses on improving the quality and costs of healthcare systems and understanding the impact of policies. He is well positioned to give us today a deep insight into the current state of play in the battle against the coronavirus and what hope there is for the future, including in India. Welcome to this podcast, Dr. Jha, and thank you for joining us today. Narayan, thank you so much for having me on. So you have argued earlier that to measure the true impact of the coronavirus uh, in any country, and certainly in India, we need to look beyond the official fatalities record of the government. Why do you argue that? And if we used a different approach, what would be the different sort of numbers that we'd be looking at? Yeah, so there are a couple of different issues here that are worth uh, thinking about. Um, So first of all, the, the key metrics that we want to obviously sort out are questions like how many people have been infected? Uh, how many people have died. Uh, And both of those are driven a lot by how carefully you look. So if you have a lot of mild infections happening and you're not testing extensively, you're going to miss those. And therefore, you might find that you have a very high case fatality rate because you're only testing the sick patients and only finding very sick people. Alternatively, if you don't have a very good surveillance system for deaths, Uh, If every death is not thoroughly investigated, you might find that a lot of people die. You don't know why they're dying. And you may think that your case fatality rate is really low because you're missing a lot of COVID deaths. So all of that is my way of saying that the understanding both how many people have been infected with this virus in India and how many people have died of this virus in India is tricky business. You can't just look at the official statistics. Right. Uh, but from what you're saying, is there any chance at all that it could be, it could go the other way? So, for example, uh, we do find maybe that while much larger numbers of people have been infected, uh, you know, the, the recording of deaths and the causes of deaths has been relatively more accurate, even if not perfect. And yep. could we be, is there any chance at all that we're in the right ballpark in terms of fatality or is it going to be, in your experience, quite, quite different? So just so I'm clear, but if fatality numbers or fatality rate, which one are you? Fatality rate. Yeah. So, I mean, the way I think about it is to me, the fatality rate is not, I don't, I personally, I'm not even sure why that's a particularly important statistic to follow. Because the way I think about this is we think globally, the fatality rate of this virus is about 1%, maybe a little less. When all is said and done in India, that will be the fatality rate in India. And I actually expect in India, it'll be lower than 1% because India has a relatively younger population. So I am not so interested in fatality rate. I'm interested in fatalities. How many people have died of this virus? And how do we prevent more deaths uh, from occurring? And so right now, when I look at the total, the statistics, 
the statistics suggest as of this morning that about 20,000 people have died of this virus. Um, that strikes me as very low. It's possible that we are doing a good job in India of ascertaining all the deaths, but I would not be surprised if we're missing a lot. And, and the reason is that when I look at the United States, when I look at Western Europe, the United Kingdom, all of those countries have had a lot more deaths than they have officially recorded. And so if high income countries with very good surveillance systems are missing 30, 50, 70% of deaths from coronavirus, why would I not expect that India would be also missing 30, 50, 70% of the deaths? So I would not be surprised if the number of people who died of coronavirus in India is substantially larger than 20,000. Um, I also think that the current estimate of about 7 lakh uh, people, 700,000 people having been infected is almost surely a very substantial underestimate. So both of those numbers are going to be much larger. And the key things for us to track are how many people are getting infected, how quickly is that changing, but really how many people are getting sick and dying of the virus. So looking at what you mentioned right at the start in terms of surveillance and monitoring, is it a legitimate claim by a government, any government, that they need to conserve test kits and surveillance system resources over time and hence are limiting testing numbers to what we see? Because the, the biggest fear, in a sense, is of that overwhelming surge, which you know, can, can significantly uh, be more than the capacity of hospital systems to handle. Yeah, so I don't, there is this argument that a lot of people have made that we need to conserve testing. And I have to tell you that I find it puzzling. I don't, I don't understand it. Um, testing is a, first of all, there is no limit to how much testing a country can do. If it makes investments in reagents, in other supplies, it can do very large numbers of tests. So, you know, India has done about 10 million tests so far. Um, the United States has done about 40 million. Uh, Russia has done 20 million. Why, why is India's capacity less than Russia's in terms of the ability to do testing? So I don't, I just think it's a priority issue. If India decided tomorrow that it was going to, to invest substantial financial and intellectual resources into ramping up testing, I know nothing about India that makes me think it can't do it, that it has, doesn't have the capacity. So this is not a place where I would try to limit and to try to, um, you know, uh, to conserve. This is a place where we need to do a lot more testing to really understand where the disease is spreading uh, so you can be on top of it. Well, uh, there is obviously the political side of it, which you need not comment on if you don't wish, but that is that, you know, when you test and the numbers just get, seem to be getting larger and larger, it does... Uh, raise questions about how effective has the policy been so far to contain the pandemic and to fight it? Yeah, so I'm not going to get into the politics of it, but I will say one thing because this has come up in many countries and certainly the president of the United States uh, has been making this case that the problem of America is too much testing. Um, this is incredibly short-sighted. So even from a political point of view, um, you ultimately, the, po the political victory comes not from denying the spread of the virus, but from controlling the virus. And testing may, in the short run, make things look bad, but in the long run, actually helps you get control of the virus. And if you limit testing, again, you in the short run, in, in the weeks or maybe next month, it can look okay. But at some point, the disease outbreak will become so substantial that it'll become undeniable 
no matter how much you limit testing. So I get that sometimes politicians want to make the next news cycle look better, but they really should be thinking about what the news cycle will be in a month or two months or three months from now. And of course, in my opinion, what they really should be thinking about is the health and well-being of people in the country. Uh, but, but that's a different conversation. So uh, let's look at how we might exit it since you, you know, we were headed that way. Um, is the theory of herd immunity, uh, does that hold out some hope for us until a vaccine arrives? Um, what is the potential of both herd immunity and vaccines uh, respectively to halt the pandemic in its tracks? Could you explain how they work separately and together even? Sure. And just to be very clear, uh, in some ways, vaccines is a different way to get to herd immunity. The purpose of herd immunity is that once you have 60 to 70% of the population immune to the disease, then the virus can't spread very much anymore and slows down and it becomes, uh, it doesn't completely extinguish, but becomes a, a much smaller problem. So how do you get to 60 to 70% immunity? The best way to do it is through a vaccine. But if you don't have a vaccine, so then the, that's what usually people refer to as herd immunity. What if we just let the infection run? 60 to 70% of India's population getting infected. Just worth knowing right now that uh, less than 1% of India's population has been infected so far by best estimate, right? Um, because 1% would be 13 million people, right? And so, okay, if we assume that 700,000 is, is too low, even if it's 2%, the idea is to get to 60 or 70%, that's close to a billion people getting infected. And if you take a 1% fatality rate, that's 10 million people dying and tens of millions of people getting very, very, very sick. Hospitals completely overwhelmed over the next year. That's a disaster. That is a disaster. So herd immunity is the policy of complete and utter failure. Um, with millions of people dying, hundreds of millions of people getting very, very sick, the economy will be completely destroyed because you can't run an economy when that many people are sick. So I always sort of say it's kind of intellectually lazy. I'm not calling you intellectually lazy. I'm saying people who advocate for herd immunity because basically it's giving up. It's saying... We don't want to work hard on this. We know it's a problem. Let's just give up and let everybody get sick and lots of people die. And I don't think that should be a India's strategy. Uh, it's not good for the Indian people. It's not going to be good for the Indian economy. So in that sense, to forestall that kind of outcome, you know, India has had some of the most stringent lockdowns across the world. Uh, people have studied it. And um, do you think that that is a sort of a halfway measure to at least delaying the impact so that the hospital system capacity is a noble one. Yeah, so remember that the entire game here, in my mind, I don't want to call it a game as a, a, to diminish it, but the entire strategy here is to protect people until a vaccine becomes available. And I believe a vaccine will be available for India uh, sometime in 2021. And my hope is that it'll be in the first half of 2021, but there's a lot of uncertainty. But let's assume that it's July of 2021. So we have about a year to go until that vaccine becomes available. So lockdown, I was very supportive of the lockdown. When it happened, I thought India was being very bold and in a very good way. But lockdowns only buy you time because you can't be locked down for a year, just not possible economically and socially. 
And so then the question is, what do you do during that lockdown? And one of the things I've said many times is you've got to use your lockdown well, because you don't get to do many lockdowns over this time, just because the cost of lockdown is so substantial. So the key is to use that lockdown to substantially ramp up testing, to communicate to people of India what will happen when the lockdown ends, how our behavior must change, to put in those policies to ramp up hospital capacity. That's what you want to use that time of lockdown for so that you're ready when you unlock to be able to handle what will surely be a surge of cases as we are seeing in India right now. Okay, and uh, the other thing that has been discussed a lot is the fact that sometimes it, there is information about new symptoms that we are seeing, and even, of course, the fact that there might be new, many different strains, more than one, maybe even up to seven different strains of the virus across the world. Is this virus mutating? And, um, you know, just yesterday there were reports that it might be airborne. Uh, is it true that, you know, we're going to see many more new symptoms and have to adopt different strategies to deal with it? So uh, largely, no. Um, you know, when I talk to virologists, kind of the leading virologists in the world, and I ask them, how many strains of the virus are there? Most of them say one. And some of them say maybe two. <clears throat> so let's talk about that. Viruses mutate all the time. Uh, every, you know, and that's how we actually track virus spread is by looking at minor mutations. The real question is, does a, does a mutation confer some sort of a functional advantage or disadvantage? Does it make the virus more lethal? Does it make the virus easier to spread? There is some evidence that a one particular mutation that we see in the kind of more European strain as opposed to the original Chinese strain uh, may make it a little bit easier to spread but not much evidence that it is much more lethal or less lethal, not much more evidence that it causes very different symptoms. It just may be a little easier to spread. Even that is controversial. So I have said, we know a lot about coronaviruses uh, overall. I'm not very worried about mutations. I'm not very worried about the virus becoming very, very lethal all of a sudden. The virus is lethal enough on its own. What I am much more concerned about is that we are, as we learn things that we're communicating and, and with people, that there is a strategy for dealing with this virus. The vaccine we're developing, I expect it to work no matter what mutations happen in the next few weeks and few months. Am I 100% sure? No, nothing is 100%. But I don't lose sleep over mutations right now because I'm not seeing the kind of mutations that make me concerned about uh, the virus becoming more lethal, much easier to spread or resistant to a vaccine. Okay. And finally, um, if looking at the scenario in India again, uh, do you, when do you see this viral uh, spread kind of peaking and coming down from that peak? Uh, I know I'm asking you to look into a crystal ball in a sense, but all okay. things given the way they are right now. And if whatever your prediction is for that, uh, what would you say or advise in terms of policy to the government of India? Yeah. So, um, Again, India, the thing for policymakers in India to understand is that the pandemic is still quite early in India. Because of the lockdown, things got delayed. And that was a good thing. We, want the, we wanted the delay. Um, but it is very early. In, and if the question is, what will, when will the peak happen? To me, the question back is, what will cause the peak and the decreasing of cases? 
Right now, less than 1% of the Indian population has been infected. And what we have seen in other places is left unchecked, that number will grow, grow, grow. And it will grow exponentially until we hit 60, 70% infection, which is a billion people. So of course, I think it is not going to be left unchecked. And I don't expect that that's what's going to happen. So what do I think is going to happen? I think uh, there are things India can do to really reduce the spread of this virus and slow down that, that growth. Um, increasingly, we have good evidence around mask wearing. So I think people should be wearing masks. They should be wearing masks when they're outside. They should be wearing masks anytime they're indoors in any public space. So I think that's going to be very, very critical. Um, second is we've got to go after hotspots. Every time you detect an outbreak, testing, tracing, isolation strategies. I mean, we, they have worked in lots of places in India. In India, we've seen it in Kerala. We saw it in Darvi, you know, in, the, in, in Mumbai. So there's no reason for me to think that that can't be a really critical part of the strategy. I think for the next year, no large gatherings. So no uh, melas, no these, you know, we all know them and, and they're wonderful things. And, and just for the next year, large gatherings should largely be banned. If India does all of that, the testing, the mass, the getting rid of large gatherings, uh, really rethinking about things like indoor restaurants and other places where virus can spread. Um, then I think India has a pretty good shot at keeping the virus from getting into exponential growth that will cause us to get to hundreds of thousands of cases a day. That's what I want to avoid. Because if you get into hundreds of thousands of cases a day, you're going to find very quickly that the hospital capacity of India is not going to be able to keep up with all those sick people. Um, but I expect that, that India will continue to see increasing number of cases for many weeks and probably many months ahead. Okay, thank you, uh, Dr. Jha. That is really useful. And uh, again, to our viewers, this is the In Focus podcast from The Hindu. Please do tune in for much more. And uh, on this episode, we had Dr. Ashish Jha from Harvard. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.